G'day there, guys, and welcome back to the Blowing Cartridges podcast. I am one of your hosts, Zach, as always, joined by my other lovely co-host, Brendan. Brendan, how are you going? Going well, thank you, Zach. And I think uh, some of our listeners won't realise, but I'm actually now on the other side of the world. So there is about a 10-hour difference between you and I right now. I think as we record, it's probably a Saturday morning in Australia and, uh, well, uh, I think just after midnight in the UK where I am at the moment. So it it does pose a bit of a challenge and also is the reason why we haven't really been posting many episodes lately, but we do hope to use technology to, I guess, continue delivering this podcast and also delivering content to our hopefully many loyal listeners. So uh, do bear with us as we get the kinks all sorted out and the like, but I think we'll be able to manage it with some ingenuity on both our parts. Yeah, and that's why I didn't say uh, it's a lovely morning, because uh, while it is a lovely, well, relatively lovely morning here, it's I have no idea what it's like where you are, and it's also nighttime. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think also, I mean, not to rally off a list of excuses, but I mean, there's also been issues like my computer broke, I've now got a new computer um, over the last few months, uh, I don't know if I've said this in the podcast, where I got married, uh, and that took up a lot of my time, um, so I think just between the two of us, you um, obviously big life change moving overseas and me um, also having a few things going on. It's just made it a little harder to record as regularly as we like, but we're hoping to get back to schedule as well as exploring other options um, to keep contact more regular and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see how that plays out. But speaking of, I do want to have a quick uh, shout out to one of our podcasting buddies, Drew, and his show, The House of Mario, for, for two things. One, uh, if you if you do and not listen to the house of Mario, you would have seen he's recently made some changes to his own podcast to um again also get out more regular content um he's similarly gone through some life changes this year with the birth of his son um and we're wishing him uh, and bryce all the best in their future endeavors with their you know individual creative efforts now that drew's sort of solo taking on the house of mario and bryce is off doing his streaming though still obviously um you know, potentially guesting on the house uh, every so often, as well as thank Drew for having me on his most recent episode of the House of Mario Encore, at least at the time of recording. Touch wood, that's still true potentially when this goes up, but we'll see, uh, where we were lucky to both meet up in person at PAX Australia and uh, record at the Audio Technica booth. Uh, did a bit of, uh, you know, 20 questions Nintendo, as well as just uh, talked a bit about the return of PAX uh, in 2022 so you know if you haven't already go check that out on your podcast feed or youtube uh, at the house of mario encore and definitely do because i know from my own experience from a couple of years ago when i was lucky enough to join both bryce and drew at the time on in the audio technica booth at pax at what would have been i think the last or second last pax before locked yeah it would have been the second last pax before lock no, last pax before lockdown 2019 it's a fantastic experience and a lot of fun and uh, House Mario is some great content. Drew's always been a great supporter of our podcast, so uh, definitely keep on checking out his work. Yeah, and uh, I was lucky enough to meet uh, on that recording Josh from Nintendvania, uh, sort of another Nintendo podcast, uh, also from South Australia. There's just something about that um, that ball water that must... Um, get people uh you know into nintendo podcasting (laughs) well they're stealing all the water from victoria so it is what it is 
Yeah, no, it's all just, you know, running off. But, um, you know, another podcast to check out, Nintendvania, uh, a bit more focused on bringing guests in um, and definitely uh, worth a listen to. So check out at Nintendvania again on your podcast app. So hopefully that's enough plugging for now. So, yeah, uh, I have just been last week uh, at the time of recording to PAX Australia 2022. Brendan, sadly, probably one of the first PAXs you've missed, if not one of the few that you've missed, I would have thought, from Australia now that you're in the UK. Maybe the, maybe the other time you're in the UK, you missed one, if I'm recalling correctly. Yeah, that's correct. So I missed 2018 when I was living in Scotland, and I've missed 2022 now, and I'll probably miss the next couple as well. So it's sad because I had been at everyone since uh, 2013, which was my year 12 year. So that was actually an interesting one to go to when you had all the pressures of those exams, which these days feel very insignificant. But Always a fantastic event, and uh, I do recommend anyone that is ever in Australia and around Melbourne to definitely check out PAX. It's a fantastic weekend, and I'm very jealous to see that well, you and a lot of my other friends were able to go back. Jealous, but also very glad that people could, I guess, reconnect and enjoy what's so good about PAX. Yes, for sure. And I mean, yeah, I'm sure we'll be jealous of you when you go to Gamescom or EGX or other <laughs> events around uh, <laughs> yeah, Europe and the UK. Um, but uh, yeah, this was our weekend to shine, I suppose. And I don't want we don't want to do an episode about packs because again we try not to be too too, you know, specific to the time and create something a bit more interesting, hopefully, for a longer period. Um, but there was something that sort of was a big feature of this year's packs that I think delves into a, a broader topic. Uh, so typically if you've been to a convention like PAX, uh, you're typically gonna see quite a number of different booths and companies represented. And, and PAX has historically had uh, quite a few number of larger publishers. You know, Nintendo, PlayStation, Xbox is usually there. You get maybe Square Enix, um, maybe a few others. And then as well as in the indie section, which is um, obviously pretty, pretty straightforward. It's more up-and-coming indie games, some of them from some established uh, small companies, others maybe brand new, and this is their first game that they're trying to market. But this year at 2022, it was definitely a more heavy focus on the indies and there were very limited numbers of what we would sort of tip, you know, typically call as AAA big budget games. I think the only three that really could count as unreleased AAA games, there were obviously quite a few live service ones that are just persistently ongoing, were Sonic Frontiers, uh, uh, Street Fighter Six were the two big ones, and then tucked away in the corner was Alone in the Dark, the reboot, which which is probably borderline double AA, A, triple A. Um, but, you know, different to years when you've had Cyberpunk, uh, despite, you know, how that's turned out in, in the long run, or uh, Super Smash Brothers Ultimate, or, you know, a new Pokemon game, uh, or Halo, or something like that, that's, uh, you know, a bit of a bigger name to draw in the crowds. And, it, and it's spawned quite a lot of articles. I've seen, you know, Kotaku Australia saying that triple A's weren't missed. On the flip side, I've seen, I think, Games Hub talk about uh, how it, it's definitely noticeable. And it, it was a massive talking point, not just amongst us content creators and, and podcasts and the like, uh, but just generally anyone you were hanging out with the show was, was a lot of like, oh, it's a bit of a shame that XYZ isn't there. But it's cool also checking out these indie games. And it sort of made me start to think about what is the, I guess, relationship between indies and AAA and what they provide to this this medium and this space 
Because I certainly know uh, when I look at my own friendship groups, I see people on all ends of the spectrum. I see people who only play, you know, the big budget uh, AAA release, typically like a Sony published first party title like Uncharted or, uh, you know, A Last of Us, God of War, etc. And then maybe fill it in with some Call of Duty or FIFA in the, in the interim, as well as people who basically never touch the, the big budget games uh, anymore, and they're almost exclusively playing uh, what would have at least been indie when they started out. Some of them have probably expanded beyond indie. Like I'd say, Minecraft was definitely indie and is now uh, its own behemoth, but you know, it still I think carries the same vibe. <laughs> it's yeah, Minecraft is bigger than most uh, other video game publishers. I think would be some, and well, of course, owned by Microsoft now, so definitely AAA. Yeah. Exactly, or even things like Rocket League or whatever, which were, were certainly indie when they when they launched, um, but they're not so, you know, not mm. what you think about when you, you think artsy and maybe a little uh, smaller in, in nature. But yeah, so I want to talk about that a bit and how it sort of impacts the industry. And I mean, to start off, Brendan, I mean, not that you were there, but I'd be keen to get your thoughts on what, you know, if. If you had a choice, ignoring obviously the other benefits of seeing your friends and that kind of stuff going to PAX, but if you had known in advance something like you know Nintendo, Sony, Microsoft were not at PAX, and the biggest game you could play was Sonic, <laughs> does that does that kind of like discourage you from paying you know what sixty five dollars a day or a hundred and something dollars for three days to go to an event like like PAX? Look, it definitely does because I guess to give some context. One of the first, well, I went to pet the very first PAX. That was the very first, I guess, convention-style event I went to. But one of the ones I went to after PAX was Comic-Con in would have would have been about 2014. And the reason I went to Comic-Con was that I wasn't huge on comics and anime and the like, which a lot of people go to for the cosplaying. I went because Nintendo was there showing off uh, Super Smash Brothers for Wii U and they had a stall there and a setup and... I went there with my friends and basically we just kept on going again and again to the Nintendo booths there to play Smash. And for a similar thing that, yes, there's all the other great aspects of PAX. There's all the great indie games and there's been some a lot of great moments I've had at PAX experiencing these indie games for the first time and really getting into them. And there's been a few that I went away from that PAX and got into the game and played it and really enjoyed it. But ultimately, some of my favourite PAX memories outside of the social elements is those big AAA games. It's things like last time I went to PAX, I lined up to play uh, the Marvel Avengers game, which sure turned out to not be so great when it released, but it was great to experience that demo and get a taste of the game before it released. And the other moment that really stands out to me would have been, I think it was PAX, PAX 2017. They had um, Microsoft had a setup of Sea of Thieves on the Pollywood side, which is a, a wooden boat and oh, yeah. outside of the Jess Shed uh, Exhibition Centre in Melbourne and uh, they had the Xbox Ones all set up in the boat and that was a very long line. I think I lined up for about two, three hours and get onto the boat to play, but it was like that was just mind-blowing. It was just a really good experience and it's one of my favourite PAX memories because I think for me part of going to PAX has always been to, sure, it's to discover the indie games as we said, but it's also to get that first glimpse of these other games and particularly the two times I went to PAX, you know, I guess more of a journalist capacity for another castle and then Heroes of Play, it was to, I guess, scope things out and 
sure, we interview the indie developers, we hype a lot of their games up because I guess, frankly speaking, it's easy to access them and also they do some really cool innovative things on the other hand as well. So there's a lot of value of doing that, but it is also to get a sense of like, sure, we can watch E3s on our computers, we can watch the latest trailers, but actually getting some of those demos in our hands and playing them is a great experience in itself. Uh, and it's also interesting because you do get to try out things really early in development sometimes. I think what was really interesting this year was there were actually quite a few indies with booths without a playable demo, which I hadn't seen before at PAX at no. least. They were just showing trailers and, and you could talk to the dev, obviously. But, you know, sort of beside the point. I, I tend to agree, you know, I, I, I have some really fantastic memories of going to events and trying, you know, whether it's Smash Brothers or whether it's uh, Pokemon or whether it's... Uh... Just to cut in, sorry, um, one that sticks out to me actually is 20... Would have been 2014, PAX again, was uh, Splatoon for the first time before it released. Oh, that yes, was huge. That was massive. Yeah, that was massive because obviously it's a multiplayer game and it's great in terms of playing it with friends, uh, but also it was a brand new AAA game. You know, again, you know kind of what you're getting when you're playing certain certain games, but others you don't. Right? And Splatoon and even Sea of Thieves, which you mentioned before, were, were both unknown quantities to an extent other than, you know, they're from Rare and uh, Nintendo. So you sort of had some level of pedigree to make some, you know, judgment on. So, yeah, I, I agree. And you know, even though the lines are long, typically you're okay to put up with it. <laughs> you know, you wait an hour and or two hours sometimes, but uh, you know it's worth it for you at least to have that experience. Other people are different. You know, other people will say, why would I wait an hour to play, you know, Pokemon when I can play 10 indie games in the same time frame and then go have lunch? <laughs> um, and they're all valid. So I, I definitely, you know, we understand everyone's different. But I do think, in terms of attracting a crowd and getting people to, you know, the show, you do kind of need that big, you know, there to pull people in. It was a bit different this year because obviously uh, I think there was a lot of just want to go back to an event after three years since the last PAX and then a lot of events not happening. But, you know, I think there would be a lot of people who went this year. uh, I've certainly seen the sentiment of like, well, um, if it doesn't sort of change next year, uh, I don't know if I'd go back. And so it'll be interesting to see. I do think it's a bit of a weird year. I think, you know, because a lot of companies aren't attending any events, uh, when there was no E3, uh, a lot of the work gets done for E3, right? You make a demo for E3 and then you roll it out again and again and again at events in the latter half of the year. But if you didn't make a demo for E3 and then didn't attend Gamescom or TGS or anything, or, or you did but in a limited capacity, or maybe the game you showed off is out. And, you know, I think Nintendo had Splatoon 3 at PAX West, but uh, that was already out uh, by, you know, about a month since PAX Oz. So what's what's the value in showing a bunch of gamers who have probably already made their mind up on Splatoon, that game, uh, versus I think they had a, a tent at uh, the AFL Grand Final where, where they had Switch Sports, which are uh, probably a much smarter marketing spend in, in some respects. Well, exactly, I think. The unfortunate reality is those big publishers are good draw cards, but they are slowly starting to realise there are other ways of reaching an audience and targeting that audience. And you see it in examples like Sony abandoning E3 in that, sure, that takes away from the event of E3. That takes away a draw card, but it's sometimes it's in the publisher's best interest of doing that because they only have finite resources, even though we see them as huge 
I guess, juggernauts of the industry. They aren't going to be able to turn up to every single thing. Though, of course, we hope that events like PAX Australia is big enough for things people like Nintendo Australia to turn up with games. But the real test will be 2023 PAX to see what the lay of the land is. Exactly. And you mentioned Sony, and I think that's a good segue to talking a little bit about the digital events and, and showcases and marketing. Uh, it was, you know, interesting and I was uh, lucky enough to, to see Shuhei Yoshida at PAX and he talked a bit about his new, or relatively, you know, it's probably two years since he started at the head of PlayStation Indies after he had uh, stepped down as head of PlayStation, you know, Worldwide Studios or whatever it's called these days or, or was called back then. Uh, so moving from first party specifically to Indies, uh, partly out of passion, but also, uh, you know, an identified need apparently within PlayStation to... I guess, get back to supporting indies because I think they, they had a very strong indie uh, support level at the start of the PS4, uh, maybe into the PS3, and then it sort of waned a bit towards the middle and end of PS4 and definitely the start of PS5, but they're trying to bring that back. And we've seen, you know, Microsoft and Nintendo have their their ups and downs with indies as well. Um, I'd sort of say Nintendo's currently on the biggest high with indies for the most part, but... um. All three of them have clearly recognized the need to support that space. And it's interesting to see how they do it and what, how they intermingle it with their marketing, right? Because not a lot of these indies, uh, even if, you know, Sony, Microsoft, whoever bankroll some of the marketing or some of the budget for making the game, they still end up sort of coming elsewhere. Like I think Tunic is an interesting example of, of recent times, which... Microsoft uh, obviously had some involvement in, in paying for, but it's still just come to you know Nintendo and, and PlayStation systems fairly recently. Uh, and even games that Microsoft seemingly own the rights to, or at least to some extent, like Ori and, and Cuphead have come out on the other systems. So it's very different to a first-party big-budget title, which you... Um, you know, is going to be exclusive for your platforms uh, or maybe your platforms plus PC these days seems to be the trend. <laughs> um, and, that you know, they're still willing to invest time in putting tra- these trailers out there in their channels. And I think that speaks a lot to why these little games are necessary and the, the bigger companies recognize that. Maybe, again, not the third parties like Konami and EA, etc um who, who maybe don't benefit as much but at least the platform holders because i i sort of see indies playing a really important part in ensuring there's always content and that's a bad word to use i know it's very controversial but games maybe i'll say games to play coming out on your systems because when we were young i feel like there was a lot more spread in what big publishers were putting out, you know, I think that we had terms like B games, double A, single A games compared to just triple A. And a lot of that middle ground has fallen away. It's maybe come back a little bit with THQ Nordic, but not, not to the extent of when we were quite young and there were, were tons of games coming out of, of varying quality and size, still all charging full price, mind you. But now with how long it takes to make these big budget games, I feel like indies are, are really the only solution to ensuring your platform has at least something new, something fresh to to pick up and play uh, in between the big release cycles. I think it's twofold in that there's the relationship you just mentioned in that your smaller publishers have fallen away. So 
I guess what we would have historically called B-grade games or single-A games that were made by developers like THQ, not the not the current THQ Nordic Embracer, but original THQ and other ones like Acclaim and the like was that Midway. Midway, uh, yeah. That they released those, I guess, they had a constant stream of games. It was an environment where there was more publishers, so platform holders had constant content, even though arguably it's less content than we had now due to indies. You had more content and... I guess bigger publishers could release more games as well. Platform holders could release more games. So you had a steady flow of games in those traditional forms. And now indies, due to them being a bit more agile, less of a corporate structure, easier to, I guess, release games because you don't have to worry about the retail space. And I think that's probably what I'm going to stress is I think the main game changer is that why indies stand apart. And sure, a lot of them now do get physical releases. But I know from talking to some at PAX in previous years, a lot of the times the physical releases are just sort of a extra thing, a nod to fans, and might get some more players and engagement through a physical release. But the majority of the money they're going to be making and bringing in is from those digital downloads. And over time as well for a lot of these developers, like there's a long tail on most indie digital games that, and even some of the bigger examples that um, have been written about by people like Jason Shry and that, there's been examples of indie games that they release and the, and the developer thinks, oh, this has been a big mistake. I'm not going to actually make any money. But the reality is, unlike a big publisher, unlike a smaller publisher, a lot of these indie games are one, two, three people. So sure, it's not a great environment to be in, not a great situation to be in when they have to pay their rent and buy food. But if there's a long tail on their game, well, they're going to be constantly getting royalties, constantly getting money, constantly getting their income. and through sales and things that can increase and continue to generate income for them that can continue funding their projects, funding their future games. So it's an entirely different, I guess, business model, entirely different way of operating as a game developer. And there's, of course, pros and cons. And platform holders really embrace that because, yes, it provides them more content and also it provides them a way of putting out trailers, of doing things like Nintendo doing their Nindy Directs of, Giving their throwing their fans a bone to say, well, all these cool things are coming out, and really they haven't really had to pay anything. Sure, sometimes they do support indie developers, and they make it a bit easier to certify their games and the like. But they aren't funding the development themselves; they aren't putting resources into them. So it's sort of getting the best of both worlds. And really, if you think about it, they used to do the same for the smaller publishers. They used to do the same at things like E three. Nintendo and the like would always have sizzle reels of third-party games coming to the platform, and they were your, like the infamous one I think of is the first Wii U one where you saw Alien Colonial Marines getting showcased and things like that. So I think there's a mercenary element to platform holders in that they they're really going to work with whoever is coming to the table, whoever is helping them, or in their ultimate quest to sell as many consoles as possible. So. It's definitely becoming more and more important as just, I think, the traditional model of game development, game publishing is becoming a lot more unwieldy. And I think it's a completely another topic altogether, but you started talking about Microsoft and things like Ori and my, and my even Minecraft being on every platform. And I think that just goes to what we talked about a number of episodes ago about just Microsoft's completely different approach with Game Pass, which is, of course, very interesting to discuss, but I think kind of... I think also speaks to the fact that 
them as a platform holder. They just want as many games on their platform as possible. And I guess it's less and less of a issue for them if those games are also on other platforms as well, because there's a particular value proposition with a subscription service. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I want to talk quickly about something you mentioned just then was the Nindies or Indie Directs or Indie World Presentation or whatever the correct marketing term is um, that Nintendo do where they it's a specific like event or, or showcase uh, digital obviously uh, that they just do where they just had pretty much just Indies like there was the one time they had a Cadence of Hyrule which is still an Indie but had some Nintendo branding obviously and, and with, with Zelda characters but for the most part it's, it is just here are indie games coming to Switch for about 20 minutes or so. I'm curious what your thoughts are on those segment segregated, this is the indie sort of games events versus just melding them into your own other showcase. Because, I mean, occasionally we'll get an indie game in a proper Nintendo Direct or a State of Play or whatever Microsoft calls their events, and then they change them every other um, time they do a stream. And if anything, I'd say Microsoft's the one that, does the most in terms of incorporating all types of games in their events because they don't seem to have as many as, as Sony or PlayStation or, or Nintendo, uh, and thus uh, they, they kind of just do everything all at once, you know, two or three times a year rather than a little bit of one thing this month and a little bit of something else the next month. But do you think it's it's smart to segregate them versus doing them all together and have, you know, Starfield alongside... Gosh, I'm blanking, but I'm sure there was uh, some very good indie game at. Uh, well, I mean, Hollow Knight or Silk Song was obviously part of Microsoft Showcase this year at E3, but I feel like again that's one of those juggernaut indies at this point that um, transcends whatever platform uh, you know showcase it's in. But yeah, like, do you think it's it's better to mix your your AAA and your your indie games into one sort of showcase, or is it better having them as these segregated? just go here for the indie games and watch if you're interested kind of events well you've touched on it zach and i think we do really need to talk about the different types of indie games that yes you have your silk songs your hollow knight silk songs your juggernauts as you turned it and those stand on their own and i think there's a few other indie games that are similar in that if you think of like supermassive games things like hey well they got did supermassive games get bought can't remember it feels like they could have but if they did it wasn't by like one of the platform holders i'll look it up while you keep talking but yes you have games like hades which is huge as well and of course released on pc first it had a bit of a following but you have those standout ones that have hype behind and have people wanting to play them cuphead is another one yes it had microsoft involvement so they had an interest in promoting it but these are like your big name ones that People recognise the indie games. Shovel Knight's another one. Had a Kickstarter. Built up a momentum. And there's other examples of those. And then you have varying qualities of ones. Like in plenty of those dedicated Nintendo Indie World Showcase, Indie Worlds, whatever they call them these days, there's, you get some of those bigger ones from well-known indie developers that have a track record. And then you have the ones that, oh, that looks really interesting, but I've never heard of the developer. And they might have a brief developer interview talking about the concept and talking about the game and the experience of developing it but and that get, grabs your interest that makes you think oh that's something i want to keep an eye on and i might check it out or i'll flag it and if it's on a sale i play it and i think that's the advantage of having the separate presentation for those i don't want to really call them lower grade 
indie games because they aren't. It's just the lesser known ones, the ones that don't have that gravitas, the ones that don't have the track record behind them that a that a Hades or a Hollow Knight has that just might be forgotten, might not get the attention if you put it up against Starfield. Whereas there's some indie games that can confidently stand side by side against those games and will look great. And it's, it just reminds me of things like Devolver Digital's events at, D, um, at E3s that, sure, they're all indie games, but they'll put something like Shadow Warriors 3, which is a 3D indie game in the vein of like nine, late 90s, early 2000s first-person shooters, which looks quite, I guess, advanced, quite visceral against a 2D game. And they're both indie games. They both would review pretty well. Like something like, I'm thinking of Death's Door from a couple of years ago that was very critically acclaimed. So you have these two games that are both indies work together because Devolver Digital's event is more of an indie showcase and a big platform holder, big publishers sort of event. And that works as well. So it's about synergy. It's about making sure that people don't miss things because, oh, you just showed me Starfield and that looks amazing and then you just showed me a really small windy game that I've never heard of the developer. Looks kind of cool, but it does. it's not catching me. It's not motivating me, if you if you know what I mean. Yeah, 100%. Uh, as a side note, Supermassive bought by a Nordisk Games, which is a subsidiary of Nordisk Film, which in turn is a subsidiary of Egmont Group. Okay. So not a player I am familiar with in the video game space, to be blunt, but I'm sure they will eventually become some sort of super massive conglomerate, hence the pardon the pun, uh, as things like Embracer or, and there's a few others. Or they'll get just bought by Embracer. Yeah, they'll probably be embraced into the family. Yeah, for sure. And I think Devolver's, sorry, that you brought up is a really interesting one because they've really done a, a great job as a publishing label of, of first off, make, through their creative marketing, uh, making their events and their showcases something you want to watch anyway. Like, you just want to watch it for the theatrics and then the, the games can be almost a, a side point to them. But also they've got, like, a brand to them now, right? Like, I'd say uh, Devolver and Annapurna are probably the two for me at least, that I think when I see those logos, I kind of have a vibe of that what I'm getting. Like I, mm. I know that it's in theory been vetted quite well and I can get a sense that it's gonna be of a certain style, particularly Annapurna, I think is is even more focused on those sort of art house indie games than perhaps even um Devolver. Uh funnily enough, Devolver at PAX uh with I think uh Angry Foot and Gumbrella, which I tried Gumbrella and it's it's quite fun. And I think that's what I was talking about, I guess, the yeah. different grades of indie games. I don't really want to call them grades, but I guess just the different the different tiers, I guess there's always going to be yeah. a natural hierarchy, and that's an example of that. Correct. But that's different. In, there's two ways of doing it, right? So you've got, like, your Silksong, which has got the brand name because it's the sequel to Hollow Knight, right? Or conversely, if... Uh, well, just assume Supermassive is still indie for the point of this discussion... Their next game is going to come out, and it's because of the developer, and it'll get hype because it's a super massive game, which has sort of been the case for a, a few of their entries. But Hades, I think, has really pushed them even further, despite how well both Bastion and Transistor and the like have, have done as well. And then I feel like Devolver and Aperna, they put games that uh, would otherwise just be not noticed uh, and give them the credibility through the publisher name, even though the publisher probably doesn't have too much involvement, 
Uh, I think there's some actually very interesting articles around uh, a certain Australian indie game that Devolver published. I think it was Devolver. If I'm getting it wrong, I apologize. Uh, where there were some issues with the development and uh, they tried to use Devolver to to sort those out and it, it ultimately Devolver took a very hands-off approach rather than a hands-on approach, uh, which can either be good or bad, I suppose, depending on your, your, your view as a creator. You might you, you might want just money and <laughs> let me do what I need to do and get my game out and thank you for the help in, in marketing and, and getting it out there versus someone who's actually going to creatively come in. Besides the point, um, it just all I guess I'm trying to highlight there is is this like credibility through a number of streams um, and ways of doing it. You know, like I think eventually when we'll see the next game from the Entitled Goose people, it will have a little bit of credibility because of of the fact they did Entitled Goose game. But I also think it's a bit different to say Hollow Knight because I think if it doesn't have a similar funny gimmick, it might not be as big. From that perspective, um, I don't think it carries the same weight as Hollow Knight, where its fans are so rabid and uh, and go, "This is you know a ten out of ten, one of the best Metroidvanias ever," and it's really sort of come around the quality of it. That um, I think even after Silk Song, the next Team Cherry game, if it's still sort of in a similar play style, will probably garner a lot of attention. Definitely, and I guess it reminds me of. Yes, track record matters, but there's also going to be a hype machine. There's also ways of indie games through things like Devolver Digitals, particularly Devolver's good at it, and also Ninja Directs, Indie Worlds to boost a game and get people's get the get it on the agenda, get people interested in it. And a good example of that recently would be Cult of the Lamb, another Australian developed game published by Devolver, but that developer had released other games before Cult of the Lamb, and I just think they they weren't really on the radar of most of the games media. They weren't really on the radar of most gamers. But Cult of the Lamb has been discussed on Australian TV. It's been has quite a wide most podcasts I subscribe to that talk about games that are releasing and current games have talked about Cult of the Lamb. It's something that's particularly, I guess, Australians because it's an Australian game, but also internationally as well. So it's odd that we still call them indies, even though they have a publisher behind them, but. And I think that goes again to the idea of a hierarchy and tiered system, that there's ways that indies have, I guess, grouped together and put a bit of an infrastructure around them that can help in putting the game out there for building a following that can... The hot topic of this episode is about the relationship between indies and platform holders with bigger publishers. And I think that's the area that, of course, bigger publishers can and platform holders particularly can really hone in on these networks mm. and build up or also help up build up these games help help get hype around and get people playing the games on their particular consoles and boosting it that way and that's where brief periods of exclusivities comes in you see a lot of indie games that were released first on switch and then maybe pc and then other platforms so that's another tactic that platform holders use outside of their conferences and outside of their online offerings of promotions and they're just I guess putting trailers on the YouTube channel. They have other mechanisms as well if they like a game enough, like a like a smaller publisher enough. And there's another aspect I want to quickly, or not quickly, but just touch on in general. So we've sort of talked about how, from a marketing perspective, it can be quite helpful to mix and match. You know, your indies with your AAA. You know, you come for Smash Brothers, you stay for Goose Game or something like that. Uh, but 
outside of the marketing, I think it's probably a, a question that some people who are maybe more into indie games and less into AAA games was like, why? What, other than that, do you really need the AAA games? Like, wouldn't indie games be somewhat successful anyway if they're good? Uh, and I'm, and I think there's still going to be some success. But this, is good, this might sound really counterintuitive. I think a lot of the big budget AAA games are kind of necessary for creating new gamers because of a few reasons. One, of, of course, is they have the budget to actually market on television in front of movies, billboards, etc., which, you know, even the biggest indie games aren't often getting it. I'm not seeing many Cult of the Lamb um, billboards around Melbourne, sadly. <laughs> but, you know, maybe one day. And that's what maybe gets someone who isn't necessarily into games now interested in maybe checking it out. You know, they might it might be like, oh, this Last of Us game looks pretty interesting. The story looks quite good. You know, it might be someone who watches the HBO show when it comes out and want to try the game. And that might be their way into gaming. And they might try something like The Last of Us and say, this is actually a bit <laughs> too hard for me. And then someone might be like, well, why don't you try this other very narrative and similar sort of vibe game that's maybe a bit simpler because uh, it is a, a maybe a 2D indie game that's that's not as complex to control uh, and uh, is maybe a bit of a warming up point because, you know, the, the indies themselves, unless they are getting published by, um, you know, EA or, or somebody who occasionally do that, again, just aren't necessarily going to feature uh, heavily outside of the games media space. Well, to do a quick plug again, because we're about half an hour in and we haven't done one since the very start, uh, people should go back and <laughs> listen to episode 23 of Blowing Cartridges, where we talked about gateway games, as we called them. And I think you very much encapsulated the spirit of that idea um, in what you just said, Zach, in that, that I think I 100% agree with you, because I think ultimately, if you talk to people that aren't necessarily hardcore gamers, even if you talk to hardcore gamers, their entry into the media have all, has always been those tentpole games. It's things like Call of Duty. It's things like FIFA. It's things like any sort of interactive games. Like for me, it was things like Age of Empires and Age um, AAA Nintendo games. Your Ocarina of Times and the like. That's what grabbed you, dragged you into the into the media, dragged you into the dragged you into the um, form of entertainment and kept you there. And then you started to explore and you find the Silk Songs, you find the Hollow Knights, you find the Shovel Knights, you find Jackbox Party, you find Towerfall, you find these nuggets that you can enjoy and that's not necessarily going to happen. Yes, sometimes they do happen like that. Like Minecraft is probably the example of being able to ignore the AAA, but people got into gaming just because they heard of Minecraft and played it with people in their primary school or high school and became gamers through that. So it's not a hard and fast rule, but I think there is definitely a symbiotic relationship there. Yeah, I mean, again, you're right. It's not impossible, but I think Minecraft, and there's probably a couple of others that are the exception. Does the Roblox count? Is that a game? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> um, I was in an EV yesterday, and this kid was very upset that they uh, apparently no longer sell Roblox cards at EV for some reason. Funnily enough, though, downstairs at Aldi, still had Robux cards, so I hope the kid found his way to Aldi at some point. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think I think a really recent example, and you can sort of see how it's playing out in the indie space as well as these Animal Crossing, right? Like, that was, that obviously blew up at the start of the pandemic for 
for a lot of reasons around it being a pandemic and people having time and this being a hot new hotness. But uh, I don't think that would have blown up in the same way if it was a, you know, PC only indie game that's just started versus Nintendo big budget money throw at you and have it on TV everywhere and already have an established fan base as well that sort of was, was singing its praises. But now we're seeing a ton of uh, Animal Crossing likes or just life simulators or whatever you want to call them pop up. And on one hand, it might be a bit of an oversaturation. But on the other, I think the only reason many of those will succeed is because Animal Crossing did bring in a new swath of people who had not played many or any games uh, and are now sort of looking to scratch that itch now that sort of Animal Crossing hasn't really been updated or supported for quite some time. Uh, and people have probably done everything they can and want to do in it, and they just need to, they, they just want to keep going. And, you know, I, you know, I think of people I know like that, and I've definitely seen people, you know, play Ooblets, for example, or not that it's indie, but that new Disney Dreamlight Valley, because they are looking to scratch that itch of, uh, of what they had with Animal Crossing New Horizons uh, a couple of years ago. So, yeah, I think it's absolutely counterintuitive but it makes sense that sometimes these bigger more complicated games do bring people back into the more smaller indie ones on the flip side though i think and not to rehash our gateway games topic too much if someone you know is trying to get a kid or someone who's uh less into games into them um a lot of indies are probably better places to start because they aren't as overly complicated as as more modern big budget games to just to figure out so again, I'll, I'll say listen to that episode for more specific examples, but I, I guess what I'm saying is it's a two-way street and the both are different gateways for different types of people for different reasons. Yes, and I guess what you just said reminds me of, not to plug it, yet another episode, but one of our early episodes <laughs> we did back in 2020 was with, uh, sorry, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but uh, one of your friends, uh, our Father's Day episode, and he was- uh, uh, Matt. Yeah, yeah, from Matt, yeah. sorry, when we- um had Matt on and he was telling us about how he tried to get his son into gaming and thought, oh, I have fond memories of playing Super Mario World on the Super Nintendo and uh, I'll pull that up and uh, get my son involved and invested in that. And he really struggled with it. And it was a game like, I think for memory, it was Spyro on the Switch, the remaster that was a much more effective in getting his son involved and interested in games because I guess it was more, just more going on, more visual different like yes it's more complex game but it can capture attentions people's attentions are captured in different ways and yes indie games can be simpler so that can attract your attention that can get you in and one of the things that i've been thinking about when we were talking about this topic is that inherent advantages to an indie game there's inherent advantages to the model that i spoke about earlier that makes it easier to i guess attract attention that gives them advantages over triple a big publisher games and that comes down to the fact that by their nature they're cheaper than a triple a game by their nature you can generally go on an online store and pay anywhere from five to the most for an indie game might be forty dollars australian we're talking here and that's can be that's a lot cheaper than your 60 70 80 dollars and sure this might be that can create a barrier in itself because you might try to tell your friend or you need to buy Hollow Knight. This is an amazing game. And they'll be like, oh, but it's $20 and I've never heard of this. I've never heard of the developer. Why would I do it? But that's easier than trying to tell your friend, oh, Xenoblade 
Chronicles 3 is the best game ever, go buy it. It's only $60, $70, $80 at EB Games or download that, that amount as well, maybe a little cheaper, but still at least $60, $70 to download it. That's a bigger hurdle. So I think there's a combination of factors that the lower price helps erode that hurdle. And then in partnership with the lower price, the fact that it has a lower price if it goes viral, if it's a thing like Cult of the Lamb goes viral, everyone on Twitter and Twitch are talking about it, playing it, then someone can be like, well, I can go on Steam, I can go on the eShop, I can go on the PlayStation Store, on the Microsoft Xbox Live, I think it's still called, I hope, or whatever it's called these days, and download the game for that amount and play it, or go on Game Pass and download it and play it. And it's easier for an indie game to gain word of mouth attraction and get people in that way than I think it would have been in the past and what it would have been for what you'd term your B-grade, single-A, double-A games that generally had some flaws because of, I guess, less time in the oven, less resources behind them, that it was harder to sell some of those games because they had clear problems that some people would really enjoy them, find the, I guess, the good, the good amongst all the weeds and really appreciate it. But for a lot of people... They would come away saying, well, I just paid retail price for, I don't know, Hulk Ultimate Destruction. It was kind of disappointing, even though a lot of people love that game. There's a lot of supporters of it. I guess I wouldn't call that a AAA game. So I think that's the one thing indie games have been able to conquer, and it's very much through that alternate distribution network, not to get too, I guess, into the business here, but I think that is really a part that we can't escape. Yes, no, I 100% agree. Uh, one other thing I sort of want to talk about, I guess, is the benefit of, of both AAA and and indies in the industry for the developers themselves. Uh, because, again, I think a lot of people maybe have a view on which is better to work for or do or, or whatnot. I think in reality, the different types of people both uh, have their benefits and their, their negatives. I mean, working in AAA probably has a lot of benefit of job security to an extent. I know there's been a lot of layoffs, so I don't want to say that as uh, willy-nilly as I, I probably just sounded like I was. But it is a very different prospect to knowing I'm working on Call of Duty and I get paid a, a you know a wage every two weeks or month or whatever it might be. And probably after this, I'm going to work on another Call of Duty <laughs> straight away versus... I'm working on this very risky thing on a finite budget, and as soon as that money runs out, uh, we better hope the game shipped and is making money, because otherwise we will not be making more games. <laughs> and I think different people just have different risk thresholds, different levels of anxiety and that kind of thing around what they're willing to do and, and what they're willing to put up with in, in, in terms of how well they maybe want to sleep at night. And for some people, they might be great at a certain you know creative job they might be great artists they might be great game you know designers uh visual effects you know sound whatever it might be but they just don't have the the willingness to risk it all and create their own game or necessarily all the skill sets to do it again some people have very specific skill sets that you know are great as part of a large team to make a big project but they couldn't necessarily make a, a game by themselves or even with a, a small group of people if they don't have the right things accessible to them so having these big studios that are again you know you're getting paid fairly regularly and 
there's a little bit of comfort again yes you can get laid off that's true of any company of course but hopefully a bit more stability in theory on the flip side it's great having indie studios because i mean particularly look at australia right our AAA space got largely destroyed through again closures and layoffs in the gfc and i think we've got sledgehammer games which is a subsidiary of activision that have you know operated here for a number of years now but most of the companies that are around are indies and if it wasn't for those uh australians had to move and many still do overseas to get jobs at studios because there's just nothing here and that's again a a big life change as well not everyone wants to they want to make games but they don't want to do it away from their families or their friends or you know perhaps away from a country that provides health care for free uh, or as part of your taxes however you want to view it versus another country (laughs) that will not do so so i think it's really helpful that we have again these options to uh either start your own studios and hopefully get some funding from the government or something to to help with that uh and and work in these smaller places from anywhere in the world versus um also being able to go from perhaps slightly less risky projects guarantee some some money coming through the door or work on a very specific niche thing that only you do uh, and forms a bigger part of a, a massive game, um, but again, wouldn't be enough to, to make your own game by yourself. It's like any other industry, if you think about, I guess, business consultancy or the like, that you're going to have your, well, in consultancy, your big three, not to bore people. And yes, you have many, many other firms outside of that, or you have hundreds of thousands of firms outside of that, from boutique ones to middle to ones that are quite large and not quite as big as the big three, but you still have all those different players and there's plenty of people that, yes, their aspiration is to climb the ladders of the top tier ones, but plenty of people have entire careers in the smaller ones and have very fruitful careers. So it always depends on what sort of approach you want to take. So I guess, because I get the sense that why we've gone down this road is I guess it's a bit of a, I guess we're going into the ethics of consumer or game video game consumerism <laughs> in that some people will say, oh, I really want to support the indies because they're inherently better than the AAA studios that are, do dodgy labour practices and aren't the best to work for. And uh, indies are sort of this utopian way of game developer and the grassroots way of assisting game development. And that's probably true to an extent, but I 100% agree. I, I think you're hitting the nail on the head that, yes, some people want more security so they go for the larger corporate structure, which we can argue until the cows come home about the pros and cons of that corporate structure, but it's entirely valid to do so. And maybe someone, there's some people that will be purely happy with, oh, I'm the expert on characters opening doors in video games, and that's the one thing <laughs> I do on every single video game I, I um, create. And actually, it just it reminds me of that. Uh, I always like to plug Jason Shriver for whatever reason when we talk about complex things in gaming and complex topics. But in his latest book, Press Reset, which released, I want to say last year or the year before, I'm probably going to get corrected on that, but recently released, he actually, because that one's about what happens when game developers get shut down and where do developers go. There's an example of, I can't remember for the life of me at the moment what, company they worked for what game they worked on but it basically within that company there was a group of people that were into doing the battle design the gameplay particularly how battle systems worked and 
in like a real-time action game and that's what they got back together after that that company closed and they basically became consultants for hire in a gaming sense that other companies could bring these guys in and they'd design the battle system for the game they'd they'd provide their um their own expertise because that's just what they wanted to do they didn't want to be an indie developer they didn't want to make their own game per se they wanted to still i guess do work for higher jobs but have a particular specialty in doing that because you have some entire studios that will do work for hire and basically create the entire game and not really get credited for it or get like a co-credit and you see that in the actually a lot of triple a's but um big publishers and even some platform holders nintendo do it for a lot of games that they'll have another studio that basically do the legwork and their directors and the producers are in-house people but basically this team they got together were just doing battle systems so that's what they wanted to do and yes we can criticize corporate structures we can criticize big publishers but i think more or less we are in a we're in a situation where we talked about this with uh, matt sainsbury actually about well yes it's better to support indie games and we need to do our best to support indie developers but and that there's some inherent issues with the current system but i think we have a good we probably have as best a balance as we can at the moment in a landscape point of view of there's a lot of flexibility if you are a developer and yes it might not be perfect you can still get caught in some pretty bad situations but it is getting better in many ways yeah exactly and, and to be fair there are pro- good and bad situations at any size of company uh unfortunately you're not always going to have insight to that and uh that is what it is and it's it's kind of like a, a life decision we have to live with but it, you know at the end of the day uh, again it, it's it's just fantastic to see how Indies have been able to flourish, in my view, and, and actually grow and and have a spot that's quite prevalent in gaming. Because, I mean, if you compare it to other mediums, I won't say that there's definitely indies in every art form. I mean, obviously, they should go without saying. But the way they're talked about is very different, I find. I, I don't know. You know I, I think about art house films to, to games is probably the most close example to an extent. And I definitely feel like it's a different kettle of fish where it's been a while since I've seen, you know, Channel 10 talk about some Australian art house film breaking out and and finding massive commercial success, whereas I've seen two Melbourne-based video game indies get the news uh, on on Channel 10 in the last, you know, two, three years. So I I feel like that's prevalent of how supportive the general game playing audience is of these smaller games and, and probably many don't even think about the fact that they're quote unquote independent. Um, Cause it, and as you said, that line's blurring day in, day out with more publishers in the space. Like again, and they're growing like Devolver or Annapurna, as we said, EA do their publishing as well. And it's almost moving more to indie being a vibe to use a very, <laughs> what, whatever generation is currently on TikTok term. Um, and less about the specifics of your legal ownership, corporate structure, etc. You know, if anything. So, I think it's just great that we're in this point where you can thrive as an indie, quote unquote, or as a person working in AAA. And similarly, those games can all thrive uh, without too much, I guess, cannibalism of of each other's sales and success. Yes, and I think ultimately. 
to tie this all back to Pax. That's it, it's balanced. There's a synergy in the relationship, and we're at a point where you need both. Well, I guess for some people, if you just had all the flashy AAA developers and publishers, and they had all their latest things, and it was all wall to wall things like Starfield and um, Breath of the Wild Two, and got the new God of War that people would be like, oh, this is the best thing ever and they would ignore all the indies. But there's always going to be those people that will go to those big games and then go to the indies and be wowed by a thing like one I remember for many years ago was like a Death, death um, Scares. And was it Death Scare? No. Ah, uh, the cubes? No, the one where you're um getting knocked off the scare case with the balls. Oh, I forget, but I know what you're talking about. But Death Squared was great too. I've reviewed that game. Yeah. I highly recommend Death Squared <laughs> on PC and all other platforms, Switch I played it on. But, yeah, you get wowed by those little experiences. Um, there was a shooter by Indefatigable Games as well. Um, oh, what is it called? Um, oh, I can't remember all these games. I'm useless, clearly. But, like, there's just all these really good experiences that you can find. And... You can find it if you go to a trade show or, sorry, a convention like PAX, trade show like E3, you can find them if you're scrolling through the eShop. And I guess something we haven't really talked about is, I guess, the amount of indie games there are now yeah. and that some of them aren't of great um, quality, which we might want to briefly touch on. I don't know what your thoughts on that there, but I guess it's something we're never really going to get away from as an industry. And I mean, yeah. We've had trash always. Uh, we've just got more trash uh, because of the lower barrier to entry, right? I luckily think for the most part, while maybe making the eShops a little unwieldy at times to, to sift through and find the hidden gems, it's not impossible for good stuff to stand out. Like so, certain things you can just tell are garbage. Like all those, uh, there's a very good Kyle Bossman video about these series of games uh, and developers that just put out platinum trophy games on playstation where you pay you know one two three four five dollars and the whole point of it is it's just an incredibly quick easy game with very minimal graphics or anything just to get a platinum trophy and obviously sony aren't incentivized to stop that because it's a few dollars they get um or a few cents per sale and the the cost of hosting it's probably non-existent because they're probably two megabytes at most (laughs) in terms of how (laughs) big they are you know, the point is there is some absolute garbage. Uh, and obviously the mobile space, I think, and, and to an extent Steam were probably the two first examples of that because I think previously the the, the, the PSNs, Xbox Lives, and whatever you, you want to call the Wii shop channel were all fairly, they were a bit more curated than they are now. But I think being less curated is still the better outcome because, again, it removes those barriers to entry. I mean, again, you can read up some very, interesting articles about how hard it was to get on to, to either the Wii Shop or Xbox Live or PSN uh, and how hard it was to get paid. I think there was a minimum sales number on uh, Wii that yeah, you had to Wii-ware. hit for the WiiWare game. <laughs> yeah, which is crazy. Whereas now, I, I, from what I understand at least, you know, if you no matter what you sell on Switch, on Steam, PSN, Xbox uh, Live or whatever it's called, you get the cut that you're a fairly standard cut, I would have thought, for the, for the most part, per sale, effectively. Epic, uh, again, there was that massive debacle between Epic and Steam and um, everyone being, for some reason, very angry at Epic for, for giving developers more money because they're like, you're just trying to, you're just trying to, like, 
twist the market. It's like, or are they just trying to provide healthy competition to the to the PC uh, game launcher space? Yeah, either way, that's probably a, a whole two-hour discussion we could have on a separate podcast. But point is, um, while yes, there is more trash, I think at least good games can can float to the top. There's probably again another very good discussion we can have in another episode around the mechanisms how games do float to the top and how they are discovered and how it probably could be better and um, there's probably a bit of danger around the amount of power we give to our existing games media landscape as well as probably a bit of the echo chamber they form where once something comes big they all talk about it which might mean something else is going unnoticed but um, I don't think those problems are going to be solved by there being less games because I just don't think that's ever we're ever going to go back to a point that there isn't hundreds of thousands of crap games released every year across various platforms. No, and the ultimate issue is yeah, and I think probably a very good topic we can discuss in a future episode. But fundamental issue is if you start gatekeeping, then well, on whose criteria, who's the gatekeeper? What sort of games make it through? What sort of games don't? Who actually gets to make those judgments? Like, as an old school Nintendo fan at this point, I think we can both call ourselves old school Nintendo fans by the age we are. That, yeah. uh, like, we probably remember all the jokes in the late 2000s, early 2010s, of particularly in the Nintendo community of, oh, the Nintendo seal of quality meant nothing in the 80s. Like, all these bad games on the NES, like, oh, we were lied to. And of course, the Nintendo seal of quality was all about, well, the game would work, but. That's all they check. There's the certification process of, well, Nintendo wasn't checking the quality of the game that, oh, this is a really good game. We recommend everyone buy it. It was purely, well, this will actually work. You'll Like, if you buy this, you'll get something that well, you or your child or your whoever you're gifting it to can play it. Whether they enjoy it or not is entirely a different question. It's entirely subjective. It's like, if you think about a game, esoteric games that have huge followings, like, Something like Pathologic 2, which I've been playing on and off for the last, nearly the last year, that it's a game that actually <laughs> hates you. It wants to, it doesn't want you to succeed. It's a bizarre experience that I haven't really experienced anything like it. I won't say their name because I don't know if they would want that, but uh, one of our Aussie Nintendo Discord people, I'm sure you know who I'm talking about, uh, Brendan is massive into Pathologic 2 and uh, at PAX, he was wearing a shirt, and I didn't. I haven't played Pathologic Two, and I asked him what that, um, <laughs> what the logo was, and he gave me a very um, uh, strong hint that I need to play Pathologic Two. So maybe that's uh, I have to add that to my list. <laughs> that individual is who gifted me Pathologic Two. So yes, I know exactly who you're talking about. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yes, it's just like my point is, if you start gatekeeping, there's probably someone that would reject that to say, oh well. This game is like really weird. This isn't a fun game. No one's going to enjoy this. Why? Why should it be on my platform? Why should it be on Steam? Why should it be accessible to the people that come to my walled garden? And oh, there's a better game anyway because we've decided that oh, there can only be five games released every fortnight. And well, since it's five games every fortnight, your game better be good enough to make the cut. I think that would be a very very, very negative landscape and a very counterintuitive one. I think you're right in that things generally tend to rise to the top and sure, that's not always a 
not always a sure thing. I'm sure there's many examples of indie developers working so hard on a game and it's probably by all rights a really good game, but no one ever plays it because it never gets any attention. But I feel like that would be a very, very rare occurrence. So it's nothing you can really quantify, unfortunately. Yeah, and I'm, and it's not always in indie games as well. Like I think, um, God, I need to look it up. I was literally before this um, looking up. Uh, sorry, I was watching the Easy Allies podcast for the week, and they were talking about. Let me see if I can find it. Uh, no, I'm struggling. But anyway, it was like it's a game. It's a maybe like a, a double A sort of game. Um, that looks quite good, very God of War-like, uh, visually quite appealing. Um, and they just sort of got it, saw an Out Now trailer for it, and like, I've never heard of this, and it's got only like four reviews come out on Metacritic, but they're in like the 80s. And so it might now finally get a bit of a following. But uh, yeah, even some of the mid-tier and probably not, not always the big ones. I think the big ones, you're going to hear about their games, but... Um, they're not always going to find the level of success that even they intended, right? And so I, I think there's, there's definitely a lot to be done in how we bring the better games out to the top. But again, there's a lot, as you said, this, there's going to always be questions around who does that and why are they qualified to do it. And at the end of the day, it's going to be, well, there's no good solution. It's more you've got to find someone who helps filter things out for you or a group of people or a few few companies and Hopefully, you know, through that you find good stuff, either that or you win Powerball and have $100 million or something and uh, can just live life downloading every game and playing them for five minutes to figure out which ones you actually want to play. <laughs> well, exactly. We're never going to... We both have long backlogs. I think yours is worse than mine. I, I keep an updated yeah. Excel spreadsheet of my gaming library that includes all the free games I get on, like, Humble Bundles. Well, not free games, but... Games I get through Humble Bundles and Epic Game Store free weekly games. If, if you've never been on it, go to Epic Game Store and actually get their weekly free games. There's actually some really good games that pop up from now and then. But uh, I have like over a thousand games and that's the ones I own. There's many more that out there that I don't own that I've probably missed. So we have finite time. So curation is always going to be an issue. But yeah, overall, I think, you know, the point is, Hopefully, in the in the future, we'll continue to have indie games, continue to have AAA. Neither of them will go away. Hopefully, PAX will see a return to a good balance of both. You know, it's funny, uh, even Shiro Yoshida in his story time made the specific comment that, like, you've just been to PAX West, and he's like, ah, oh, PAX West, small indie section, many big publishers. You know, PAX Australia, you have no big publishers and only indie <laughs> games. And uh, I'm like, well, that's only this year. but um. I think goes to show between the two shows, there's probably a, a middle ground that we both need. They both needed to meet that they weren't, and I think that's symbolic of again the broader balance we need in the industry. Full stop. Yes, I think you put it very well. Uh, I think it's all about balance, really. It's about giving us gamers as many opportunities, well, as wide a variety of selections as possible for us to choose from. Really, that's what we that's what we want. Ultimately, we want to accommodate as many gamers taste as possible that's what we want to see out of the industry uh we might wrap up uh and while again i don't want to make this a topical episode i am just going to quickly list off a few indie games i tried i was going to actually ask you to see to ask what your highlights (laughs) were so that's really good 
Yeah, yeah. So if if anyone is listening uh, around release or even probably a few months after, because I'm sure many of these aren't out. So some of my favorites, uh, one was Spirit Well, which is, I think, about to launch its Kickstarter. It's effectively a Earthbound, Undertale, uh, Amori-style game uh, where you're uh, a little person who's found their way into a kind of, it's like a, a world full of um, like Japanese yokai or, you know, spirits. Um, so you've got like a little kappa friend that wears a mushroom hat uh as as your companion uh at least at the, the section i played but yeah the the developer's focus here was i like these types of games but i don't like the combat so i'm making this game without any combat uh and so instead it's a lot more puzzles and uh mini games at least from what i played as well as just obviously a lot of character and talking and i think that's quite a good idea because i definitely think you get an earthbound undertale will appeal to a lot of people, but they get frustrated at certain points in the game that may be too challenging or just too grindy. Uh, So I'm very keen for that. Another one was, uh, I think it's called Table Pop Bungie. I'm just going to look it up. But if you watched PAX Online last year, it was the finale for the Omegathon. And uh, if you didn't, uh, effectively what it is, it's kind of like, Sorry, here we go. Topple Pop Bungie Blockbusters. Uh, and it's planned release is 2023. There's a demo on Steam, actually, if you want to try it out. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like Tetris if you were mixing it a little bit with a crane game. Ah, uh, yes, I remember this. Yeah. Yeah, you see, so you've got to grab, you get given pieces and you kind of got to drop them where you need to go. But I guess instead of like a, a crane that just goes up and down, uh, you're a little character on a bungee cord. So it's you're quite wobbly and you're quite uh, springy as well. So it has some interesting physics. Uh, it was a ton of fun. Uh, I played actually the co-op mode, which I hadn't seen before, where you work through the campaign uh, with your your friend to, to sort of solve predetermined puzzles. I guess kind of like Dr. Mario, you know, where you've got like, okay, well, I've got to break these specific blocks. How do I get the um, colored blocks I get into those positions as efficiently as possible? And then obviously the multiplayer is a bit more, again, like competitive tetris-like with you know uh, what are they called like tetromonomies um, trash blocks oh. that's the word <laughs> now yeah fall, falling when when you get ah, a combo yes, yeah. onto your opponents etc so that's very very fun one i didn't play but looked very interesting and from what i watched uh was called dark web streamer which is seemingly a sort of visual novel type game based on a the concept of you are a you know a video game streamer on the dark web um and visually it looked very impressive with kind of like black and white pixelated artwork uh i mean kind of like let's say papers please kind of you know character caricatures but um again very much on that black and white uh and i think it's got a bit of a horror element to it so i think maybe you know not for the kids but for people who like things a bit more edgy and interesting that that looked very cool and then lastly, uh, and probably no surprise because I love the studio, uh, Witchbeam, who did uh, Assault Android Cactus and, of course, Unpacking last year, had their new game, Tempopo, uh, which is a bit like Lemmings crossed with Captain Toad, uh, where you're this oh, little... Oh, yes, this is amazing. Tempopo. Yeah, little, little dude. Uh, and you've basically got to set their actions around the map to advance and then quit play and then they'll move around the map typically have to collect something and then find the exit 
So, I mean, the levels I played at PAX were clearly World 1-1, so they weren't overly challenging. Uh, and there were probably a few aspects of, like, I do want to see a bit more of an explanation around how certain things work before I, you know, rather than just having to go through trial and error constantly, it'd be nice if I'm like, I know when the character hits the wall, he's going to go backwards or left or right, because that wasn't clear to me. But obviously the game's not coming out for at least another year, if not longer. So we've got a bit of time for, <laughs> for that kind of UI stuff to come in. Um, but that's still very cool. Music was amazing. Uh, so w- when it does come out, I'd suggest listening with headphones. And then one thing that wasn't a video game, but a board game, just to finish off, was uh, Floating Floors. It's kind of like Jenga, if it was mixed with like being a ninja trying to, to cross through a map. Effectively, you roll dice uh, and get those to sort of, you know, pieces through whatever dice roll you get to put like uh, platforms around a, a map and build some some platforms for your little ninja guy to um, put a floor on top and then walk across the floor to get to his, his stolen uh, treasure or whatever it might be. However, the way the maps are laid out is you're rarely going to get a, a fully stable floor. So you've got to be very careful around how you position the pillars because if you topple over and and your floor falls uh, you basically lose your turn and it gives your opponent the opportunity to rearrange it so they can make it even harder for you or they can make it very easy for themselves Uh, and you're also incentivized not to spend too many turns building out the floors because if you do that you're not going to get to your treasure first so it's the right balance of can i can i make this stable enough that my my ninja will get across and you basically place your piece down have to make sure it doesn't fall and keep doing that until later you, you reach a point that you can't move any further and need to build more or alternatively you, you topple and, and you turn. Um, so that was probably as brief of a summary as I could give, but it's a very interesting game that I've never sort of played much like before. And I do think there's some need for a few tweaks in the rules, but that they've got time till it comes out in April. So if you're a board gamer, check it out. I think it's at Guff Games, G-U-F Games. Uh, again, Victorian-based studio. I don't know if studio is the right term for a board game developer, but I'm going to go with it. So that's, yeah, my other last highlight. Oh, that's good to hear, because was that the board game that um, was mentioned in our board game episode by QC? Very possible, yeah. She's a big fan of Guff, because they're a board game shop as well, so it's very possible. It's been around for... Because did it have a Kickstarter, this one? Because I think they did a Kickstarter for a board game, yes, in last year. Yeah, I think the Kickstarter's happened. Now you can pre-purchase it for April if you want and get like a, a nicer version of it, I suppose. Um, but uh, also you can always just wait till it launches next year. Being Australian made, I'm sure it'll be easy to access in you know local game hobby shops when it um, comes out compared to a lot of the stuff from Germany or America, which you've got to wait a little bit to come here, which is... Um, yeah, again, probably shows why digital distribution of video games is so great because we all get it day one <laughs> worldwide, but um, board games, pretty hard to do digitally. So, yeah. Uh, that's great that it's turned out well. Yeah. yeah. I'm glad you were able to try it out. Yeah, and again, probably another good thing about PAX is now having that the, effectively the same section as they do for the video game indies for, for board games and, and some showcase winners that they um, highlight as well, which... They didn't in, in previous years. I think, ironically, they started in 2020 having a, a, a board game showcase. Uh, and so that, that went okay 
for two years digitally, but it was much better being able to sit there and play with the creators in person. Uh, and there was another game I bought, but I haven't played yet, but it was too cute, just called Yumcha, which... Um, oh, yes. Love the title, so that's going to be fun. Yeah, exactly. It seems a bit like Sushi Go, but with Yumcha, so I can't go wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. I mean, I played Sonic, but I mean, that's oh, a, that's a is game. Is that your game of the year? Uh, uh, it's a game. <laughs> I, 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 the the praise, well, the words I gave to our uh, our friends who were there with me because they were curious. They're like, I'm "Like, well, it works." And <laughs> high praise, high praise indeed. Yeah, well, as I said, it's compared to I think when Sonic Forces had a demo at PAX a few years ago, it didn't work very well. Um, so it works in the Sonic game that didn't work on release. Um, the one based on the Sonic Boom. Yes, yeah. So I think this this seems to function. It's very Breath of the Wild inspired, as much as I'm sure certain Sonic fans or Sega themselves will want to not agree to. But I mean, you've got a, a cryptic female voice guiding Sonic through a world, um, and uh, these kind of gates that are equivalents to shrines that take you to Sonic levels. I I struggle to um, not make the comparison, even though I'm sure there's still quite a lot different uh, when you get to the full game. But yeah, I put I'm intrigued. I think if it comes in at a seven. Or even like a ideally a, an eight in in terms of an average, I, I'd probably still pick it up because I like Sonic. But um, I, I think it's like any Sonic game: go in with caution, wait maybe a few days or weeks to to actually get real player feedback and um, see the montage of glitches if there are any <laughs> on YouTube, uh, and then decide for yourself if it's if it's your jam. Because yeah, I mean it could be good, but I'm I'm I don't think it's gonna be game of the year. Oh, well, I shouldn't be so brutal, but not really a surprise there, is it? No, no, not really. But yeah, um, but that's pretty much it. So, um, you know, again, I'm sure, you know, there are a lot of people recording podcasts at PAX. I'm sure you can find a lot of people who played more games than me and actually talk about them constantly. So, again, if you are listening to this around release and you want to actually get some impressions, uh, go look those up again. House of Mario and Nintendovania for new Nintendo stuff. Uh, and I'm sure there's others like Hungry Gamers who helped coordinate the, the recordings at the Audio Technica booth. They did a recording. I haven't listened to it yet, but I'm sure they go into some fantastic topics. So, you know, just search hashtags, look up Australian podcasts. I'm sure if you went to Audio Technica's AU's um, Twitter or social medias, they've probably plugged a bunch of them that were recorded there on the weekend. So, You'll, you'll find a heap to, to watch and listen to. Yes, definitely tune in. I know I've started to listen to a few of them and there's some great great feedback so far. So it's a great way to catch up, particularly if you're like me and on the other side of the world and couldn't go to PAX. And even if you were <laughs> in interstate or in Victoria and couldn't go for whatever reason, PAX is a thing that you can still enjoy due to technology. So got to embrace that. 100%. And what else you should embrace? Is us, but not physically, because we're not physically with you, but by digital methods, such as subscribing to the podcast, leaving us five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts, or if you're on a different podcasting service, whatever you're using, I'm sure the reviews help in discoverability, contacting us on our social media, at Blowcart Pod on uh, Facebook and Twitter, and Blowcart, BlowingCartridge at gmail.com. I think that's right. Yes, we, or is it got an no, S? no S. We missed out on the S. Yeah, correct. We have not paid <laughs> yes, that's the right. ransom oh. for the S. 
No, not yet. Um, and probably never, to be honest with you. Uh, we can we can make two. <laughs> or alternatively, if you want to embrace a single one of us, you can embrace me at Eggerino on Twitter. And you can find me at Tamazoid on Twitter. And uh, yeah, until then, I'm you know good to record, Brendan. You go get some sleep if that's what you want to do. Um, I'm going to go make lunch, uh, and I'm sure we'll do another sleepy slash waking up recording in the not too distant future for for you all. <laughs> exactly. Nah, it's good to get one of these out again, and uh, it's always good fun. So let's leave it there. Thank you everyone for listening as always, and uh, keep in tune for our next great and big episode, which should not be too far in the future. Thank you as always.